Well, today is part four in our five-part series of messages we've entitled The Cross and the Sanctuary, and it is today's message that is a vitally important one, and we have a study guide which is in your bulletin. Trust me, it'll make this morning's study a lot easier. Today's message is more a study than a sermon, and if you don't have a study guide, I invite you to raise your hand because you'll want to have especially today's study guide, and if you're watching online, there will be a link provided for you in the description underneath the video where you can download the study guide and print it out and follow along in today's message. Today is a Bible study in the final phase of the plan of salvation as we've illustrated in the sanctuary, and we will begin with a brief review. You remember leading up to today's study, we have said that the sanctuary is the interpretive key for understanding Christ. We have said that the sanctuary is like the road map. It provides a hermeneutical lens for us to do theology, for us to understand the gospel, for us to understand what Christ is doing in the plan of salvation. And the sanctuary, we said, is not just an Old Testament relic that died at the cross. The sanctuary extends from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, and Hebrews chapter 8, Paul says that Christ has gone into the heavenly sanctuary, a tabernacle that was not built with human hands to be our high priest on behalf of us to appropriate the provisions of salvation on our behalf. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, John sees the temple of God open in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant is seen there. So the sanctuary is like a kindergarten kind of illustration where God is trying to help us to understand how God is going to deal with the problem of sin, the sanctuary, the interpretive key for understanding Christ. And we have said that Jesus fulfills two roles in the plan of salvation. Two, First of all, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29 John the Baptist saw Jesus and says, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is sanctuary language. The Jews would understand this. Not only is he the Lamb of God, but Jesus is also the high priest in the sanctuary. He went to heaven, to the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf, according to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. So Jesus fulfills two functions, the function of the Lamb and the function of the high priest. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the courtyard, phase one. And here we have illustrated in your study guide and on the screen a bird's eye view of the sanctuary. It is divided into three different compartments, three different phases in the plan of salvation. You have the courtyard, you have the holy place, and you have the most holy place. When Jesus died on the cross, he came to earth and he fulfilled this aspect, the altar of burnt offering in the courtyard, phase one. And Jesus, when he died on the cross, salvation was assured for every man. But what he earned on the cross, he earned the right to forgive us of our sins. When he goes to heaven, 
he then appropriates what he earned on the cross on our behalf as our high priest. We used the illustration, if I'm $100,000 in debt for gambling, my parents hear about it, they go and sell their house for $100,000, there's something that needs to happen for me to receive the benefits of their sacrifice. They must transfer those funds to my account on my behalf. I have to accept the sacrifice of my parents. In the same way, when Jesus died on the cross, he, as our high priest, appropriates the benefits of the cross for those who believe and accept him by faith. That is what he did upon the ascension in the holy place phase. You can see the little chart down at the bottom or just underneath of the diagram of the sanctuary You see that phase one, phase two, phase three, you have the courtyard, the holy place, the most holy place, and Jesus is the lamb, the high priest, and he's also the high priest in the most holy place as well. It also gives us a time frame for what Jesus is doing in the sanctuary. The sanctuary is all about Jesus and what he is doing in the plan of salvation. Jesus is the lamb of God. He fulfills phase two as our high priest appropriate the benefits of salvation on our behalf, and then we go to phase three. So AD 31, at the cross, Jesus fulfilled phase one. On the resurrection, upon the resurrection in AD 31, he fulfilled the role as our high priest in heaven, and he continued that mediation. Now today, we are going to focus on phase three, the last compartment of called the most holy place. This is an important study because it is one that is many times not even understood in the context of Christendom today, but even among Adventist circles, this is an aspect that is muddled at best when it comes to the concept of what happens in the most holy place. I want to read the little paragraph underneath the chart, we are going to focus on the third phase of the plan of salvation in the most holy place. The most holy place contained only one article of furniture. It was the Ark of the Covenant containing the Ten Commandments. The most holy place was to be entered only once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. In our study today, we are going to answer four questions about the Day of Atonement. Now, we could spend an entire afternoon talking about the ramifications of the Day of Atonement. I'm only going to be honing in on one aspect. If you're at Bible University this past Tuesday night, we spent an hour and 15 minutes on another aspect of this. But today, we're going to hone in on the Day of Atonement as found in the book of Leviticus and make some applications to our day. So question number one, what is the Day of Atonement? How many of you have heard of Yom Kippur? Okay, that is the Day of Atonement. It fell every year on the 10th day of the seventh month, around September, October is our equivalent. It was known as the yearly service. Now, in order for us to understand the yearly service, we need to understand what happened in what was called the daily service. So you had the yearly service, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You had the daily service, which took place every single day. And on the 
daily service, there was something that happened, and we alluded to this or explained this in detail. Every single day, someone would bring a lamb to the sanctuary. It was also a morning and evening sacrifice. So you can imagine what was the daily application and the sacrifices and the blood that was being offered. I praise God that we don't have to do this anymore. But I want to remind you that everything that happened in the sanctuary service was a type that Jesus fulfilled. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He fulfilled that. All of the services were not just instituted by God for ritualistic, empty, ceremonial purposes. They all had a meaning and pointed to Christ. The whole sanctuary is about Jesus in the plan of salvation. So in the daily service, this is important for us to recognize that when the sinner came to the lamb and placed his hands on the head of the lamb, he confessed his sins to the lamb. The sinner, because he has sinned, deserves death. The wages of sin is death. Now, upon transferring his sins to the lamb, the lamb becomes the sin bearer. The lamb must die. And he, with his own hand, has to slit the animal's throat, the lamb's throat. So it was a very personal interaction with that lamb. The lamb became the sin bearer, and in that moment, that person was forgiven. He was no longer under condemnation. But in the sanctuary service, it did not end there. It would be applicable, or I would say understandable from a certain aspect or understanding of the gospel to think that all he had to do was kill the lamb and that would be it. He would just have to walk out of the sanctuary because the lamb has paid the penalty. But there was another half of the sanctuary service in the daily service that had to take place. And it's found in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 4, verse 32 to 35. It's found there in your study guide. You can fill out the words. I've tried to highlight the words that are important for our discussion here today. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 32 to 35. If he brings a lamb as a sin offering, then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they killed the burnt offering. So this is what we discussed. The person comes in, places his hands on the head of the animal, confesses his sins, and kills the animal. You would think that this would be the end of the daily service, but there was something very important that is often missed in this transference of sin and in the forgiveness of sin. Notice the second part of the passage on the screen. The priest, who? The priest, the sinner didn't do it. He needed someone to administer the blood on his behalf. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and with his finger put it on the where? On the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the remaining blood at the basis of the altar. At the base of the altar. Now this is for, important for us to recognize. Notice what takes place. The person confesses his sins, the animal is slain, but then the record of that forgiveness, the blood, is placed on the horns of the altar. Other times, it would be taken into the holy place and sprinkled before the veil of the most holy place. In either case... The sins of Israel in the daily service, 
the forgiveness of those sins, the record of the forgiveness of those sins, were being transferred and recorded by the blood on the horns of the altar in the sanctuary. Are you following me this morning, yes or no? Okay, so this is important for us to recognize that when the person was forgiven, he walked away justified, but the record of that forgiveness remained on the horns of the altar in the sanctuary. So, in a sense, the sanctuary was becoming polluted with the record of the sins of Israel, day after day after day after day. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, they had what was called the cleansing of the sanctuary. The record of those sins in the sanctuary were removed. It was cleansed. It was purified. The person was forgiven immediately upon the slaying of the lamb, but the record of the forgiveness remained in the sanctuary until the yearly service when the sanctuary was completely cleansed. Now, I want us to look in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 18. The whole chapter of Leviticus goes into the details of what happened on the Day of Atonement. And you can read that this afternoon. There is so much we can bring out of this. One of the things that happens is that this is the one time during the year where the high priest goes into the most holy place before the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkles blood in front of the mercy seat. The blood meets the requirements of the law. So this was one aspect of it, but there was something else that took place. The priest then would go systematically through every compartment of the sanctuary and cleanse the sanctuary of the record of the sins of Israel. And you'll see one aspect of this in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 18. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the, what is it? Horns of the altar and all around. You remember what place in the sanctuary held the record of the sins of Israel? It was the horns of the altar. What was his purpose in doing this? Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with the finger seven times. And notice the operative word I've highlighted there on the screen. And what does it say? And cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. This is fascinating. That in the yearly service, the high priest would go through a systematic day of atonement, a cleansing of the sanctuary, where he would specifically cleanse the place that held the record of the accumulated sins of Israel throughout the year. It was to be cleansed. This was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. I want to read the paragraph above this in your study guide at the top of page two. There was a transfer of sin in the daily service. The sin went from the sinner to the lamb to the blood. Then the priest took the blood and placed it on the horns of the altar, or in other cases sprinkled it before the veil in the sanctuary. Therefore, the record of the forgiven sin still remained in the sanctuary, recorded by the blood on the horns. And then as we have just seen, the record of sin still remained until the Day of Atonement, which brings us to question two. Whenever I've studied this topic, I've always asked this question about the nature of forgiveness. Why does the record of forgiveness still remain after you or I have been forgiven? 
I've heard this concept regarding forgiveness so many times. You know, you're forgiven. Praise God. You know, it, it, it's gone forever. Have you, how many of you heard that before? Forgiveness, right? That is the nature of forgiveness. And it is true that the moment that you ask Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and that's the beauty of what we call justification, it happens instantaneously. You are covered by the blood. But that's just it. You are covered by the blood. Which means that in the books of heaven, and the Bible talks about different books in heaven, one of them that you want your name in is the book of life. Amen? And some systematic way, God keeps a record of your sins, and when you ask for forgiveness of sins, that is covered by the blood. You are forgiven, but the record of that forgiveness still remains in the books of heaven. You are forgiven, but just like the blood was covering the horns of the altar, your sins are in heaven covered by the blood until the antitypical day of atonement. Now, why is this? Why is it that God keeps the record of your forgiveness? And this is the fundamental reason why. God never takes away your freedom of choice. All right? God never takes away your freedom of choice, meaning that your forgiveness of sins past does not mean that God takes away your future decisions of your relationship with God. All right? Meaning that I can ask for forgiveness, let's say I ask for forgiveness for a multitude of sins and it's covered by the blood, but let's say I come to a certain area or time of my life 20 years later and I say, you know what, my relationship with God, it really doesn't mean much anymore, I'm going to forsake the Lord and I'm going to live a hedonistic lifestyle. Well, God respects that freedom of choice and so God keeps the record of sin so that he can preserve your freedom of choice in the future. And I want us to remember, if you look in your study guide, underneath that, there is a, a Matthew chapter 18, verse 32 to 35. The forgiveness of sins past does not take away our future choice. You remember the parable of the unfaithful servant in Matthew chapter 18, verse 32 to 35. The unfaithful servant is forgiven a huge debt, billions of dollars. He's forgiven by the king. But as he left the presence of the king, he saw a fellow servant who owed him $10 and grabbed him by the throat, demanding payment. When he couldn't pay, he threw him in prison. What happened? The king called the wicked servant in, and his forgiveness was what? Was revoked. So here you see an instance where this wicked servant has just been justified. He's received forgiveness. But as he goes out, he sees another servant, and he does not give him the gift of forgiveness as he's just been given. The king calls him back in and says, look, your forgiveness has been revoked. On what basis? On the basis of his actions after the act of God's forgiveness. And so you see that God, in his mercy and relationship with us, he never takes away the element of our future choice. 
This is an important quote from the book, The Sanctuary Service, 177 through 178. God keeps an account with each man. Whenever a prayer for forgiveness ascends to God from a true, true heart, God forgives. But after men have been forgiven, they at times, what? Change their minds. They repent of their repentance. They show by their lives that their repentance is not permanent. And so God, instead of forgiving absolutely and finally, marks forgiveness against men's names and waits for the, with the blo- final blotting out of sins until they have time to think the matter through. If at the end of their lives they are still of the same mind, abhorring their sins in sincere repentance, God counts them faithful in the day of judgment, and their record is finally cleared. This is our understanding from the context of the sanctuary. This makes sense in light of the transfer of sin, the record of the forgiveness to the horns of the altar once a year on the Day of Atonement. Those sins were completely blotted out from the record books. Now, this is the question. When is the heavenly Day of Atonement? When is the antitypical Day of Atonement? In other words, when will God judge and cleanse the record books in heaven? Now, this is so important, and there's one text I want to take us to. There's actually three of them, but I only have one here on the screen. And here, this is after the cross, after AD 31, after Jesus has ascended into the heavenly sanctuary. And notice what Paul says. And he reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment. And what does it say on the screen? To come. Past, present, or future judgment. Future. Here, Paul reasoned of judgment to come. Many people assume that the judgment took place at the cross, or the final judgment took place at the cross. But here, after AD 31, after the ascension of Jesus, he says that there is a judgment to come. Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season, and I will call for thee. There is a judgment to come in Paul's day, a future day of judgment a day of atonement, an antitypical day of atonement. And I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning, Daniel chapter 7, verses 8 through 10 and verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, it is 1029, and I want you to see this in your Bible because for me, friends, this is conclusive evidence that before Jesus comes, there will be a day of reckoning in the record books of heaven, an antitypical day of atonement. Daniel chapter 7, verses 8 through 10 and verse 13. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there were in this horn eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I'm not going to go into detail about this little horn power, but when you look in Daniel chapter 7, it goes from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the Ten Kingdoms, and there's this little horn power. It is in chronological order. And historians have told us that this little horn power fell away in the year 1798. Notice what happens in the next verse. Verse 9 and 10 are pivotal. I watched till the thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was what? Was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. 
His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Notice this throne has wheels. It is a movable throne. Verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth before him. A thousands, thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The what was seated? The court or the judgment was seated and the what was opened? And the books were opened. We'll come back to this in a moment. In verse 11 and 12, we have the destruction of the beast's power. But look in verse 13. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, this is talking about the second coming of Jesus. This is important for us to recognize, friends, because after the little horn power, before the second coming, in between these two events, little horn power, second coming of Jesus, there is a scene in heaven where God comes to his throne, he sits down, and he opens the books before the universe. There is an open judgment. Now, this judgment is for the saints. This is not something that you have to fear because God is not only our defense attorney, he's our judge. If you're called into court and you look at your defense attorney and you're a little bit worried and you go through this discussion and he says, you have nothing to worry about because not, I'm not only your defense attorney, I'm your judge as well. I mean, you got a pretty good case there, right? So this is the case. So God is judging for the saints, but there's an open judgment. And notice who is sitting around the throne. The entire universe is watching God judge. In a sense, God is the one on trial. God is the one being scrutinized to see whether he's just and fair in the judgments, the decisions regarding his people. It's an open judgment. We have an open judgment today in our court system. If there are three courts, there are three different defendants on the docket for the judge that day, and the judge comes in without hearing any sort of open arguments or any sort of evidence openly, he just stands up and says, case number one, guilty. Case number two, guilty. Case number three, guilty. People would say, wait a minute. You can't do that. If he said, I'm the judge. I've seen all the evidence. I mean, there'd probably be a very interesting discussion that day about that, that type of court. What, what do we do in our court system? We have an open judgment, right? Where all the evidence is given, and even if the judge gives the same verdict, all of the people can say, hey, that was fair, that was right, and that's exactly what takes place. Before Jesus comes the second time, he's not just going to come down and say like, oh, you know, you come with me, you come with me, you come with thee, and then the universe is watching this and saying like, hey, why are you bringing those people? Before that, there's a determination openly as to when God brings or who God brings with him at the second coming of Jesus. Now, this judgment is not for us. It concerns us, but it's not for us. This is for the universe. You know when the judgment is, the benefit is actually for us, for our own intellectual understanding? That is during the millennium. That is when we get to go through the record books. That's one reason to make it into the kingdom, amen? Because if you don't make it, you know, 
I wonder why Pastor Shin didn't make it. Oh, have mercy. You know, they pull up the file. Oh, wow, that's why he didn't make it. That's not, that's not what you want to experience, friends, because if my mom's not there, we'll all, you know, I'll, I'll want to know, and you'll be able to go through the records, and that will be a thousand years where we will be able to go through the records. So at the executive judgment, at the end of the millennium, everyone will know God has been right God has been fair. God has been just. That is the way that God operates. It is a transparent, open judgment. In this case, the antitypical Day of Atonement, according to our understanding of the book of Daniel, occurs after the little horn power, before the second coming. There is an open judgment before the universe to see whether God has been right and fair in saving us. Transparency. Complete, open transparency. I want us to read this, I want to read this uh, excerpt from the Jewish Encyclopedia. It's fascinating. This is on the Day of Atonement. You can find it in this particular Jewish Encyclopedia under the article Day of Atonement. And notice what, how the Jews understood Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. Notice what it says here. God, seated on his throne. Doesn't that sound like Daniel chapter 8? Or Daniel chapter 7, verse 8 through 10? Listen, Jewish Encyclopedia, Article Day of Atonement. God seated on his throne to judge the world. At the same time, judge, pleader, expert, and witness openeth the book of record. It is read, every man's signature being found therein. The great trumpet is sounded a still small voice is heard. This is the Jewish understanding of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And in the same way, there is an antitypical Day of Atonement. Jesus is our mediator, our defense attorney, our judge in the heavenly sanctuary in the final phase of the most holy place on our behalf. As we come to our last passage under this question, Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment. What does it say? Has come. Notice the language here, Revelation chapter 14. It has come. Notice in Paul's day, he says it will come, a judgment to come. But in Revelation chapter 14, it says the judgment has come. According to the Bible, right now we are living in the antitypical day of atonement, the final phase of Christ's ministry. Phase one, the lamb. Phase two, the high priest in the holy place. Phase three, the final phase, day of atonement. In the most holy place. Question number four. While the sanctuary was being cleansed, what what else was to be cleansed on the Day of Atonement? There was a cleansing of the place, but there was also a cleansing of something else. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 30. Notice this. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse who? You, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So 
in essence, there was a cleansing of two things. The cleansing of the sanctuary was the cleansing of the place. But in Leviticus chapter 16, it says it's not just the cleansing of the place, it's also the cleansing of the people. So while the high priest is cleaning the record of sins in the sanctuary, there is something else that God does in the heart, in the temple, in the sanctuary of the individual. There is a cleansing from sin in the life of a believer in God. Can you say amen? So this is the implication. While God is cleaning the record of sins in heaven, God is also working in my life to cleanse me of sin in my experience and in my life. This is all about Jesus. It's all about what He wants to do. This is how God deals with sin. Final eradication of sin in the life of the believer. Notice what it says in 1 John 1.9. I never caught this before until I looked at it again and was brought forth to me. I've quoted this text thousands of times. But notice the language in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive. Praise God. And that's the part I would always quote, and I will quote that every single day by the grace of God when I'm in need of forgiveness. Go to that place and say, if we confess, He is faithful and just to forgive. But notice the second half of that verse. To forgive us our sins and to, what does it say? And to cleanse. That sanctuary language, friends. And to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The work of God is both, friends. We do not want to minimize either. We do not want to take away either of God's roles. God is here to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in Revelation chapter 14, there is a clarion call going out. Fear God, give glory to Him. Why? For the hour of his judgment has come. In other words, right now, Jesus, as our high priest, has entered or has already gone through the process or is going through the process of cleansing the record of sins in heaven. That's why it says, fear God, give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. This is a, an allusion to the Sabbath. When you keep the Sabbath, it is a testament that it is God that has recreated you and not you yourself. And he places his signature upon you, just like he placed his signature upon creation at the end. This is the testament of what God can do. Forgive us and to cleanse us from sin. The sanctuary, the model, what Jesus did in the courtyard, what Jesus did in the holy place, and right now what Jesus is doing in the most holy place, in the process of the Day of Atonement. Before Jesus comes, the record of your sins and mine, the record of our even forgiveness will be completely eliminated from the universe. Can you say amen? Amen. Let's stand together. As we pray, every head bowed and eyes closed, I want to make this appeal, and I do this every single Sabbath because I believe that 
Eternal decisions need to be made. Stand with me. Bow your heads. I want to make an appeal today. There may be something in your life, a sin in your past that you're thinking, God surely can't forgive this. And I'm telling you today, Jesus died at the cross to earn the right to forgive that sin. And today you want to claim God's forgiveness. Perhaps you have not fully accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. And you want to say today, Lord Jesus, save me by your grace and by your spirit. I want to accept Jesus as my Savior. Won't you just raise your hand today? Eternal decision. God bless you. God bless you. Is there someone else? God bless you. Eternal decisions. God bless you here in the front. God bless you. God bless you in the back. As you raise your hand, I believe that in the books of heaven, your name is being written in the Lamb's book of life. Don't let this opportunity pass. If you don't know whether you would die tonight, or if you were to die tonight, whether you would be saved, you can walk out of this church knowing that you have the assurance of salvation. Raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus as your Savior. God bless you. My second appeal is this. And this is a specific appeal. Perhaps you've walked with Jesus. Perhaps you've even been baptized. But you've lost your first love. You've been forgiven. But you've had challenges enduring in the race. Perhaps you've even walked away at certain times. And today you want to say, Lord Jesus, I want you to finish what you have started. Please. Help me by your grace. I want to invite you to come forward for special prayer here this morning. You want to say, Lord Jesus, I have struggled, but I want to endure by your grace and by your spirit. Please complete what you have started in my life. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith, friends. And Jesus is our mediator in the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf. And he beckons to us, come and receive cleansing by His grace. You may have been forgiven, but now you want cleansing from all unrighteousness. You want your first love back. You want that experience back. You want Jesus to finish what He started. our heads together as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus which was shed on our behalf. You earned the right to forgive. As our high priest, you've offered and you continually offer pardon and power in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for the model of the sanctuary. We thank you that we do not have to be lost in what you are doing in the plan of salvation that you have laid out in great detail in the sanctuary service, in the courtyard, in the holy place, and in the most holy place right now, we recognize that you are on our behalf going through the cleansing of the records. We thank you that you are not only our judge, but you are our defense attorney, and this judgment is for us, in favor of us. We thank you that it is a transparent judgment before the universe. 
We thank you that you are just and fair. We thank you that even at the end of the millennium, every tongue will confess that you are true, that you are right, and that you are a just and righteous judge. We thank you that we can live throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity without a doubt about the transparency and the openness of God in how he dealt with sin. We thank you that we serve a God like this. We thank you for the Holy Scriptures. And I pray for every person that's come forward here today. Lord, we pray that you'd give us back that first love. Lord, we've struggled. But we recognize today that you are the God who finishes what he started in us. And we claim that today. Help us renew in us the character of Jesus Christ. Give us a love for souls, a love for people, a love for God that you only can give. Work in us and through us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. For we thank you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.